Welcome to Season 2 of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. This season we take a look at the group's first few trips to Hamburg, Germany and their rise to the most popular band in Liverpool. Before They Were Beatles, episode 15, Early Hamburg Days. As we start season two, John, Paul, George, Pete and Stuart have arrived in Hamburg, Germany. But what awaits these young men from Liverpool? This is the story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence, and at times, just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings. The story of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1. August to October 1960. The Green Austin van packed with the five Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Pete Best, and Stuart Sutcliffe, manager Alan Williams, his wife Beryl, his brother-in-law Barry Chang and business partner Lord Woodbine arrived in Hamburg, Germany on the evening of August 17th, 1960, just as the sun was setting. Driving down the Gross Fahrheit on the way to meet promoter Bruno Koschmeider at his Kaiser Keller Club at number 26, the young Beatles were exposed to the neon lights and scantily clad ladies of Hamburg's notorious red light district for the first time. Koschmeider was born in Danzig in April 1926 and went on to be a circus performer until crippled in an accident. Once he arrived in Hamburg, he became an entertainment entrepreneur, owning a coffee bar, cinema, strip club, as well as the music venue. The group of weary travellers arrived at the Kaiser Keller just as Derry and the seniors were about to go on stage, and the more experienced Liverpool group gave the new arrivals a disapproving and cool reception. The Kaiser Keller was, by Hamburg standards, a fairly upmarket venue, with a nautical theme and good lighting. However, the same could not be said of the Beatles' final destination. After spending their first night in Koschmeider's flat, he escorted them to their new home, a small cramped space in what had been the storage rooms behind the screen in the rundown cinema that he owned, the Bambi Filmkunst Theatre, at 33 Paul Rosenstrasse. The boys' new residence consisted of camp beds with minimal bedding situated in two small, dank, windowless rooms with no wallpaper or paint applied to the concrete walls. Their washroom would be the cinema's public toilets. Neither would the newly arrived Beatles be playing at the Kaiser Keller. Instead, they would be the featured act at another Koschmeider venue, the Indra. Unlike the Kaiser Keller, the Indra was definitely down market. Located in his former strip joint, its owner had invested very little in adapting it into a music venue. And as a result, it still retained a small race stage and sound deadening heavy curtains and carpet. The maximum capacity was around 150 people. Before heading out in, onto the tiny stage for the first time, the Beatles signed a contract with Koschmeider for a series of engagements between August 17th and October 16th, for which they would be paid 30 Deutschmarks, or the equivalent of $2.50 per musician per day. For this, they would play four and a half hours every weekday night, from 8pm to 2am in four sets with a 30-minute break in between each set, and for six hours a night on Saturdays, 7pm to 3am in five sets, and Sundays 5pm to 1.30am in six sets. They were also forbidden to play at any other venue within 40 kilometres, 25 miles, without Koschmeider's permission. 
and as part of the contract, manager Alan Williams also received a weekly agent's fee of £10. The five hungry and exhausted Beatles took to the stage for the first time in Hamburg on the evening of August 17th in front of a paltry audience of disinterested customers. The Indra also suffered from being a location further down the gross Fahrenheit that meant that potential customers had to walk by other and often more exciting type clubs to reach it. Although there's no documentation as to what the Beatles played at the Indra, we do know it continued to be mainly cover versions. Although Lennon and McCartney were writing their own material, they rarely played them on stage at this point. A typical gig would include songs from Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Gene Vincent, Cole Perkins, etc. To pad things out during the long nights, Paul would throw in a rendition of Judy Garland's Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Or George would throw in a version of Darktown Strutter's Ball, or they would add the occasional Motown hit, such as Please Mr. Postman. Blues riffs such as Duane Eddy's version of 330 Blues. These were useful in the early hours where you could stretch it out, as John Lennon explained. Quote, We had to play for hours and hours on end. That's why every song lasted 20 minutes and had 20 solos in it. It was many nights into the engagement when the lady who lived above the club started to complain about the noise. Apparently living above a strip club had been okay, but raucous rock and roll music was too much. At first she complained to Koshmider, but then she complained to the police. And as a result, the Beatles were ordered to turn down the volume on their already aging and ineffective amps. By the 4th of October, after 48 nights of gigs and over 200 hours of music provided by the Beatles, Bruno Koschmeider got fed up of fighting the noise complaints and shut the Indra down. But the Beatles still had 12 days left on their contract. The simple solution was to move them over to the larger Kaiser Keller. Part 2. October to November 1960 Arriving at the Kaiser Keller, the boys had literal stage fright caused by the larger audience, a capacity of around 600, as well as the sheer proportions of the large, albeit slightly rotting, stage. The intimidating Bruno Koschmeider also reminded them of his standing rules performers. Whilst on stage, the musicians are not allowed to eat or smoke. Their dress should be clean. Good appearance and behaviour of language is required. Conversation with the public by use of the microphone is not desired. The combination of these rules and having never played on such a large space meant that the young Beatles almost froze in place, their movements becoming minimal. They were also now sharing the venue with another Liverpool band. A few days before the Beatles arrived at the Kaiser Keller, Koshmider's contract with the antagonistic Darien the Seniors had expired, and in their place had arrived Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, with drummer Ringo Starr, fresh from their summer engagement at Butlins. Having been used to the accommodations of the holiday camp, the Hurricanes rejected Koshmider's rough sleeping arrangements and instead booked themselves into the Seamen's Mission nearby, although they all shared a single room. From the 4th of October onwards, the Beatles and the Hurricanes split shifts at the Kaiser Keller, although the venue posters gave the Hurricanes more prominence and gave the impression that the Beatles were the support act. No matter how they were billed, the two groups enjoyed each other's company 
and commenced a contest to see which of them could demolish the rotten section of the increasingly precarious stage. Rory Storm eventually won following an athletic leap and a well-aimed heavy landing at the right spot that saw his foot disappear through the planking. Bruno Koschmeider was not amused and took 60 Deutschmarks out of Rory Storm's wages. On the 10th of October, Alan Williams made a return visit to Hamburg to see how his charges were doing, and he was also not impressed. Surprised by their lack of movement, he shouted at them to make a show, boys. The Kaiser Keller crowd took up the chance and from that point on would shout, Mach show, whenever the boys started to tire or slow down. Realising that the more the customers got involved, the more beer he sold, Koschmeider ripped up his rules. The result was electric. It was as if it unlocked something within the group and within John in particular. The music got more raucous and the on-stage antics got wilder. Virtually overnight, the Beatles became the favourite of the rowdy Hamburg club audience. The Beatles, with the exception of Pete, had also started to pop a variety of multicoloured pills, mainly the slimming pill Preludin and amphetamine tablets, to keep themselves going during the long nights performing. The combination of pills, alcohol and adrenaline just further fueled the chaos. One evening, a young German art student, Klaus Vormann, was walking along the street outside the club in a bit of a funk, having had an argument with his girlfriend, photography student Astrid Kirscher, when he heard music. Quote, I'd never seen rock and roll played live, although I knew American records and thought it was great. When I heard live rock and roll coming through this window in the basement, I knew I had to go in the Kaiser Keller. I was a little scared as there were rockers all over the place, and I looked like an art student and thought they might want to fight me. Rory Storm was playing with Ringo Starr on drums and they were very good. But then Stuart Sutcliffe came on with his dark glasses. Then the whole band, the Beatles, then appeared and Paul greeted them in his schoolboy German and immediately there was a spontaneous connection with the audience. They started playing and they were amazing. He returned the next night with Astrid and their friend Jürgen Vollmer and from that point on they were regulars at the Kaiser Keller and quickly befriended the band. Astrid eventually asked Klaus, who spoke better English, if she could photograph them. The photo session that followed became one of those iconic Beatles moments. Astrid took the boys to a nearby fairground, where rather than taking pictures of them on the various rides, she posted them among the fairground trucks, railway carriages and heavy machinery. The stark monochrome photos of the five musicians and their instruments captured the magic of the Beatles in a way that few photographers ever did again. They look mean, moody in their new leather stage gear and smiling and projecting an air that they are a heart-rocking band not to be messed with. Yet at the same time, there's also an air of vulnerability and openness to them. Another result of these photo sessions was the growing closeness between Stuart and Astrid, which at first made Stuart uncomfortable. Once Klaus gave his blessing, they all became the firmest of friends. As at the intro, the exact lineup of songs that the Beatles played at the Kaiser Keller isn't exactly known, but one hastily scribbled set list does survive and gives a taste of the wide range of influences that the Beatles pulled from. The list included Reelin' and Rocking, Chuck Berry's, Long Tall Sally from Little Richard, Sticks and Stones from Titus Turner, more Than I Can Say from Bobby V. Whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah. Love you more than I can say. I love you twice as much tomorrow. Whoa, whoa, love you more than I can say. I Know from Ed Bruce and Jambalaya by Hank Williams. Bye. 
On October the 15th, the Beatles and two members of the Hurricanes got together at a small amateur recording studio, the Acoustic, behind the Hamburg railway station to record a version of George Gershwin's Summertime. Some reports suggest they also recorded versions of Fever and September Song. Neither Pete Best nor Stuart Sutcliffe were present, so the Hurricanes drummer stepped in. And for that one glorious moment, John, Paul, George and Ringo played together for the first time. Accompanied by the Hurricanes bass player and lead singer, Lou Walters. The other side of the 78 RPM disc contains a sales promotion for leather handbags and shoes. It is understood that just nine copies of this historic recording were pressed, and only one is known to have survived. Or according to other reports, just four copies and none survived. Take your pick. The day after the recording, Bruno Koschmeider extended the Beatles contract until 31st of December, and there were discussions about a potential gig in West Berlin starting in January 1961 for a month, but fate and a competing club owner were to play a hand. At the end of October, a new club opened in Hamburg, the top 10 at 136 Raperbahn, and the owner, Peter Eckhorn, clearly had his sights set on Bruno Koschmeider. First, he hired away Bruno Koschmeider's chief bouncer, a key part of any establishment in Hamburg's toughest district, and then he poached singer Tony Sheridan. The Beatles enjoyed Sheridan's music and style, so much so that they would often leave the Kaiser Keller during their half-hour breaks to go and watch Sheridan play at the top 10. Inevitably, they eventually started to join Sheridan on stage for some impromptu jam sessions. Feeling betrayed, Koschmeider invoked the 40 kilometers clause in the Beatles' contract and served them with a month's notice. Word had also got out, probably from Koschmeider, that George was only 17, and that by German law, he wasn't allowed in a nightclub after 10pm, let alone working one every night. The Beatles played out their notice until 21st of November when the law caught up with George and he was deported. Poor George had to make the 24-hour journey home on his own and spent all of his savings on train fares and taxis. The remaining Beatles struggled on without George and played their contracted hours at the Kaiser Keller, but their off hours were increasingly spent at the Top 10 Club. They also played for two nights at the Studio X Strip Club, owned by Eckhorn's brother Uwe. In a clear overture to get the group to sign for him, Peter Eckhorn offered the boys new accommodations in the attic above his club. Not exactly the Ritz, but a definite step up from the dingy space behind a movie screen at the Bambi Theatre. On the 29th of November, Paul McCartney and Pete Best were at the Bambi, packing up a few belongings in anticipation of the move to the top 10. At some point, the light bulb failed and they lit something to give them more illumination. Reports vary. Some say they pinned condoms to the wall and lit them. Others that it was an old tapestry hanger. But in either case, it fled briefly and went out and they thought nothing more of it. However, Bruno Koschweiler thought differently when he heard a report that Pete and Paul had, quote, attempted to set fire to the Bambi. And he decided to put the matter in police hands. Paul was arrested and thrown into jail overnight at the police station on a charge of attempted arson. After being released the next morning, he and Pete went to the top 10 to sleep, where they also hastily negotiated a provisional contract, without Alan Williams' involvement, to play at the top 10 the following April after George had turned 18. But they were then rearrested and taken to Hamburg Police Headquarters and told they were being deported back to the UK at midnight. They were refused a call to the British Consul and were later bundled on a plane to London. They just had enough money between them to cover two train tickets back to Liverpool and arrived home on the 1st of December. The two Beatles left behind in Hamburg discussed their next moves, and Stuart made the decision to stay in Hamburg with his girlfriend, now fiancée, Astrid, 
and focused on his art rather than music. So on the 10th of December, John Lennon headed for home all on his own. The Beatles' Hamburg baptism was over, but they had been reborn as their stagecraft, musicianship, confidence, personality and friendships had been forged into the foundation of what was to follow. As John Lennon put it, we were born in Liverpool, but we grew up in Hamburg. Part 3, December 1960. Initially, neither George, Paul nor Pete were aware that John had returned home. It looked once again like the Beatles were done and Paul got a part-time job delivering Christmas mail in order to earn some cash. But once John reached out around the 15th of December, they were soon back together and decided to try and secure some gigs in and around Liverpool. The other problem was that with Stuart staying behind in Hamburg, they once again needed a bass player. The name they came up with was Chaz Newby, who had played rhythm guitar in Pete Best's former outfit, The Blackjacks. Newby was at home in Everton enjoying the Christmas break from his college course when they called and he agreed to help out, but he didn't own a bass guitar or one of the black leather jackets that had by now become the Beatles' standard stage dress, so both were secured for him on a loan basis. After a hesitant start with gigs at the Casbar Coffee Club and the Grosvenor Ballroom, it all came together at Little and Town Hall on the evening of 17th of December. It is generally felt that this was the gig that cemented the Beatles' future. In fact, Paul McCartney once listed this as the most important single appearance of his career. The gig was arranged for them by local DJ Bob Wooler, who had called promoter Brian Kelly and asked him to add the Beatles to the list of groups already set for that night's roster, the, the Del Ranos, the Searchers and the Deltones. Kelly was reluctant as he felt the Beatles were unreliable following their nose show at one of his engagements earlier in the year when they had failed to inform him that they would be in Scotland on tour with Johnny Gentle. Eventually, Wooler negotiated a reduced fee to get them on the bill. Unfortunately, it was too late for their name to be included in Kelly's standard newspaper ad, so their appearance was announced from the stage at other dances that Kelly was promoting around town, plus the gig posters had an extra piece stuck on them announcing, Direct from Hamburg, The Beatles. This led many people in the Litherland area, where The Beatles had only performed once before, to conclude that they were a German group. The gig opened with sets from other groups doing safe covers of current chart hits. And then, it was The Beatles' turn. Everything changed when the curtains opened and Paul launched into a rendition of Long Tall Sally. The crowd spontaneously crushed forward. The 500 hours of playing in Hamburg had transformed the group. They blasted out selections to obscure rhythm and blues and rock songs from their Hamburg set for 30 minutes to a spellbound crowd. As Bob Wooler later remarked, quote, Those who knew the Beatles were amazed. They performed as if their lives depended on it. Boys who had left just four months earlier had been transformed from a last-minute thought into the leading rock and roll beat band in Liverpool. Quote Paul McCartney, The Beatles learned how to play their instruments in Liverpool but they learned how to satisfy an audience in Hamburg. In our next episode, it's the start of a new year for the Beatles, as their status on Merseyside continues to grow. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes.
The music heard in this episode includes The Beatles, Cry for a Shadow, Judy Garland, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Dwayne Eddy, 330 Blues, Reelin' and Rockin', Chuck Berry, More Than I Can Say, Bobby V, Jambalaya, Hank Williams, and The Beatles, Long Tall Sally. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode on the Dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. The Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4Js Group, LLC.